Good morning. So glad that you could be at Flint Central Church to the Nazarene today. And we are in a sermon series, as you can tell, called Get Off Your Seat. We're looking at the story of the Good Samaritan. And, and, and we began this series two weeks ago with the, the question that prompted the story from Jesus. It was a question from a lawyer who was kind of trapped Jesus. And he, and he said to Jesus, well, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus was on to him. Jesus wasn't caught in his trap. Jesus knows that there's nothing you can do to inherit anything, certainly not eternal life. We get inher- inheritances are given. Inheritances are gifts. You don't earn it. You can't deserve it. You know, when my mom passed away, she had a little bit of money, and, and we split it between the, the, my, two, my two sisters and my brother and myself. It was a gift. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. I got it. And so Jesus, Jesus responds to him in the same way. It's not about the doing. It's not what you can do to inherit. What you do is in response to that gift. What you do is in response to the eternal life that you've been given. That's what you do. And, and, and Jesus and the lawyer agreed on what should be done, and that is you need to love God and love your neighbor. But then the lawyer asked that uh, a famous question, well, then who exactly is my neighbor? And that's when we started talking about that. Last week, Dr. Anthony uh, uh, focused in on the priest and the Levite, the two religious authorities who, who simply walked on by, didn't lift up a finger, didn't help the guy, didn't do anything, had probably some excuses of why they couldn't or why they shouldn't help that guy, but just walked on his way. And today I want to focus on the Samaritan himself. It begins with Luke chapter 10, verse 33. Let me read a portion of that story. When Jesus said this, but a Samaritan, sometimes I like to refer to him as a dirty, rotten, stinking Samaritan, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey. He got off his donkey, got off his seat, did something, put the man on it, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Then Jesus asked the question to the lawyer, which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? And the expert of the law replied, he couldn't even bring himself to saying it was a Samaritan, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. May God bless the reading of his word. There's a few things we can tell right off the bat about this Samaritan. First thing we can tell is he was on a journey. He was going from from Jerusalem to Jericho, 16 miles on his donkey, about a day's journey. Was that his final destination? We don't know, but he was traveling from there to there. That's what he was doing. We know he he had business to attend to because after he, he took the man to the inn, he told the innkeeper after the next morning he had to go on and carry on some more business, but he would return. So he was kind of on a business trip of some sort. We know that that his business was not picking up uh, uh, victims of violent crime. It's not like he woke up that morning and said to his wife, boy, I gotta get going because there's a guy who's been beaten up on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho and I gotta help him out. That wasn't part of the plan. He didn't anticipate seeing this guy. He just came upon him. Uh, 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 Did he help him because he saw the priest and the Levite walk on by? Maybe, maybe not. What What we know is he saw a guy in trouble and he did something about it. The fourth thing we know about this guy is he had the necessary tools 
to help in this emergency. He had the, the wine and the oil, ancient remedies to, to, to put on wounds. He had bandages. He had his donkey that he could, could hoist the guy up onto and take him to the inn. He had the necessary tools. We know that he had the means to help. He, he not only had the tools, but he got him to the inn. He paid for the inn, and then he told the innkeeper, because he also had a sense of responsibility, I'm gonna, if you ring up any more charges, if any more cost incur, I'll pay it. I'm going to come back. I'm going to take care of it. Again, this guy wasn't, wasn't family. It wasn't like he didn't have any other expenses in his lives. Maybe he had mouths to feed back home. And yet he saw his responsibility to help this stranger who he had never seen before and to come back and help him even more. So when we say that he was a good Samaritan, what we really mean is he was a really, really good Samaritan. I'm sure that other folks probably would have come by and saw the guy, not the priest and the Levite, of course, but other folks would have come by and saw the guy, maybe would have tried to tend him. You would have done that. You would have, you would have seen the guy on the, on the roadside. And if, if you had uh, some of those remedies, you would have poured on the oil or the wine and you would have tried to bend. You would have do, done the basic triage. Probably others, even if they, if they had a donkey, they would try to hoist the guy up. He, maybe he was a big guy, I don't know. And they would have tried to hoist him up onto the, under the donkey and take him to the, the closest emergency room. We, we would have tried to do that, I would hope. But this guy went even a step farther and said, listen, if he doesn't have an insurance card, put the tab on me. I'll, I'll cover it. If, if there's more expenses, it's all right. I'll, I just want him well. Can you do that? Can you make sure that he's well? I just want him to be well. I'm going to come back. I'm going to check on this guy. And if you ring up any more charges, I'm going to take care of it. So when we say he was a good Samaritan, I mean he was a really, really good Samaritan. But that's not, that's not the thing that most impresses me about this guy. The important thing I want you to get this morning is that this good Samaritan was in the right place at the right time to make a difference. The life principle that we're teaching this morning is simply this. God is in the business of strategically placing people in the right place at the right time to make a difference. Today we're talking about divine appointments. Certainly this good Samaritan had a divine appointment. Divine appointments are those, are, are those places where, where the world's great needs and God's great actions intersect. And frequently, like we see in this story, God will use people that look just like you and me to make a difference in someone's lives. Had the Samaritan come an hour earlier, it may have been this crime wouldn't have even happened. Had the Samaritan come an hour later or a day later, it may have been too late for this guy. Maybe he was so injured that if he came the next day, he would have been dead and gone. Maybe even an hour later, he would have been in trouble. But no, 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 this Samaritan was at the right person at the right place, at the right time. God is in the business of strategically positioning us in the right place, at the right time, to make a difference. Do you believe that? See, I, I believe that God has placed you in your workplace, or in your school, or in your neighborhood, or in this church, to make a difference. It's not a happenstance, it's not an accident, it's not a, you know, your lucky star or the convergence of planets. No, I believe that God Almighty has strategically placed you where you are to make a difference. I remember taking a class in seminary. It was called the Christian Interpretation of History. It was one of the hardest, level, the hardest classes I have ever taken. 
Uh, it was taught by the hardest professor of the seminary at the time, Dr. Paul Bassett. It was really, a, 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 even beyond a graduate level class, it was really a preparation for a PhD class. I was the only one in the class that did not go on to get their PhD in philosophy or theology. I was in it, actually I was thinking about it, and so that's why I took the class. Christian interpretation of history, and we had to read all the deep thinkers of the early 20th century, uh, Frederick Schleiermacher, Rudolf Otto, Paul Tillich, and we would have these deep, deep theological discussions in class from all the th- reading that we did, and what we, what we concluded from that class, what I learned from that whole semester of these deep, deep theological discussions, is God is up to something, good things don't happen on accident, and we can trust God Almighty. Now, I gotta be honest with you. I learned those same lessons in the first grade Sunday school class that Norm, Norm, or Nell Norton taught at the Elmwood Church of the Nazarene. We didn't use as big a words. We didn't have to read 3,000 pages of collateral reading of Frederick Schleiermacher, but we still came up with the same conclusion. God is up to something. Good things don't happen on accident. We can trust God Almighty. See, we believe, we believe around here that God is up to something. And when you believe in an omniscient, all-powerful, omnipotent, uh, sovereign God, when you believe scriptures like James 1.17 that says every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, when good things happen, it's not happenstance. It's not, whoo, you got lucky on that one. It's not a coincidence. Two weeks ago, right here, right there on that spot, we prayed for Lisa Faulkner. Lisa Faulkner is a lady who attends our church, a single lady. She was diagnosed with two types of cancer, ovarian cancer and another type of cancer that's too long for me to pronounce. And she went through all sorts of chemo and everything else. And and two weeks ago, tomorrow, she was going to meet with her oncologist after she had all these treatments. And quite honestly, I didn't think think it was going to be good news. And so we, we prayed, and, and Dr. Anthony was, was leading in prayer that Sunday, and so I went over and I anointed Lisa right there, and people gathered around her, and we all prayed for her. And, and if I would be really honest, I thought that she was going to go on Monday and get a bad report. But she went on Monday, and the doctor told her, she said, you know, Lisa, I think you're in remission. Now, <laughs> now we, we can rejoice about that. Now, you could say, well, that's a coincidence. Boy, well, the chemo did its job. Or, or boy, whoo, Lisa is lucky. Or we can believe that every good and perfect thing is from the Father, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. We can believe that God is up to something in this whole world. Now, I, I've told you before, I don't know why God heals some people and doesn't heal others. That's above my pay grade. I'm in sales, not management. I don't, I don't know all those things. But I know this, God works, and every good and perfect thing is from the Father above. And we can trust him. And we can believe that God strategically puts us the right place, the right time to make a difference. But there's a catch to that. There's, there's, there's more to this life principle that I didn't tell you. There's some fine print. So let me give you the whole thing right now. God is in the business of strategically placing us at the right place at the right time to make a difference, but here's the fine print. The right place often seems like the wrong place. And the right time frequently 
seems like the wrong time. See, we can be exactly where God wants us. I mean, exactly where he wants us. But that doesn't mean that it's easy or it's stress-free or that there's no problems or difficulties. The Samaritan was on a road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Clearly, there were problems with that road. You know, it was a crime-infested road. It didn't look like the right place. There were bandits on that road. They'd already uh, beaten up this guy. It could be that a, that a Samaritan with money in his pocket and a donkey would be a prime candidate for being victim number two. It didn't look like the right place. I've already told you, he's on a business trip. He has places to go, people to see. It probably didn't look like the right time either. But God had strategically placed him, right place, right time to make a difference. Often, the right place looks like the wrong place and the right time looks like the wrong time. Moses was where, ex- exactly where God wanted him. But that was traveling around with a bunch of whining, complaining, boo-hoo and Israelites for 40 years. David was in the right place at the right time, but he was staring down a giant named Goliath and all he had was a slingshot in his hand. Daniel was in the right place, right time, but he was sitting in a lion's den with a bunch of lions that were a lot more scary than the ones that are gonna play this afternoon. That goes without saying. (laughs) Jesus was exactly in the right place at the right time. And he was on a cross. And there's something where God, God places us. Sometimes God strategically places us at the right place in the right time. But frequently it looks like the wrong place in the wrong time. And then there's the story of Esther. Do you remember Esther's story? The Old Testament book that bears her name. Esther, there's some, here's some, some Esther trivia for you. Esther is the only book in the Bible that doesn't um, uh, ever mention the, the name of God, never once. And Esther is the only book in the Bible that has a person whose name begins with the letter X, Xerxes. And, and Esther is a Jewish uh, lady, and yet she has a person name. That's also a little odd about the book of Esther. But if you remember that, that story, you remember that that, um, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. King Xerxes had a evil prime minister by the name of Haman. Now, if this were a melodrama, I would have a, a card that I would lift up, and whenever I'd say the name Haman, you would say, you know, boo, 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 boo Haman. Because Haman is a bad guy. In fact, we, we can try that. So I'll tell the story. Whenever I say the name Haman, you'll say, no, not just one boo, 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 boo. One boo won't do. He was really bad. So when I say the name Haman, you'll say, boo, boo, boo. Exactly. Not boo, boo, because then you think we're telling a Yogi Bear story. Okay, so this evil, evil, evil guy named Haman, excellent, you're doing great, hated the Jewish people. In fact, he hated the Jewish guy named Mordecai so much because Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman. You're slow, but okay. Haman... You're getting slower. That's not good. Use the situation to blow it way out of proportion. And he, and, and he used it as an excuse really to start a, a holocaust of sorts because he wanted to wipe out all the Jews in the city. It's a crazy story. But thankfully for the Jews in, in Persia and thankfully for Mordecai in particular, he had a cousin, uh, a lady, Esther, in high places. Esther was the king's wife. Esther had been a beauty queen, and now she's uh, the king's wife, a queen queen. She has this Persian name, but she's Jewish. And to make a long story short, 
Esther convinced Zerubbabel good, that his plan was built for, for Mordecai. And in fact, that's exactly what happened and the people were saved. And that's the end of the story. Now, if you were, were Jewish today, you would celebrate this story in a, a holiday that they refer to as Purim. And Purim is an interesting, it it's usually falls in the spring of the year. I think next year it's going to be on March 9th or something like that. And Purim today is kind of like, uh, it's a cross between Mardi Gras and Halloween and I don't know what else. And they have parties and parades and people dress up for Purim. And they always read this story, the story of Esther. And just like you did, whenever they get to the name, you don't have to say it anymore. Whenever they get to the name Haman, like, thank you, you didn't need to, but thank you. That's what they do. They, they, they make boo noises or they, or they stomp their feet or they hiss or they have noisemakers. So you're all prepared for Purim next March. You're, you're ready to go if a friend invites you to a party. And, and, and that's what they do. They read the story and, and, and Haman's name is mentioned 54 times in the story. So they're doing a lot of booing and they're making a lot of noise. But the key verse in that whole story comes in the fourth chapter where Mordecai goes to Esther and he says this, Don't think that because you're in king's house that you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. I love love that from Mordecai. God's gonna work. God's got a plan B. You're plan A, but if you don't do it, God's got a plan B in this. And then he says, but you and your father's family will perish. But who knows? But you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. Remember our principle, God is in the business of strategically placing you at the right place, right time to make a difference, but often the right place seems like the wrong place and the right, right time seems like the wrong time. Esther was strategically positioned to be in this God-ordained moment. And Esther faced this moment. She had reached the top, she was a beauty queen, now she's a queen queen, and she had an opportunity to save her people. She could have lived in the lap of luxury, she could have stayed silent. But Mordecai's challenge to her, who knows? But you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. What are you going to do, Esther? It's time to step up to the plate, Esther. Right place, right time, make a difference. And then there's the story of Irene Sendler. Do you know her? Have you heard of her name? That's her right there on the screen. Irene Sendler was a Catholic social worker in Poland when the Nazis invaded Poland. And, and, and when the Nazis came in, the, the entire Polish social uh, uh, welfare department was barred from helping any Polish Jews. They said that they would be served by their own institutions. That's what the German, the Nazis said. But Irene Sendler wasn't going to stop, let that stop her. And so she and some of her co-workers uh, created falsified papers to help uh, their, their Jewish neighbors. In fact, over the course of time, they they falsified 3,000 papers. And she continued to do that, even though in 1941, the the Nazis made a rule that if you were found to be helping uh, Jewish families in Poland, that you would be put to death. But Irene Sendler, she she didn't stop. In fact, when when the Nazis fenced off what was called the Warsaw Ghetto, it had 300,000 Jews in there. And, And... And of those 300,000, between 150,000 and 200,000 were were later sent to concentration camps. And the Nazis were so uh, afraid of typhoid, typhoid fever, they they weren't afraid for for the Jews getting typhoid fever in the Warsaw Ghetto. They were afraid for their guards who were guarding the Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto from getting typhoid fever. 
And so they allowed some, some doctors and social workers to go into the Warsaw Ghetto. And Irene Sedler, she volunteered. And so she was going through under the guise of these uh, health inspections. But really what she was doing was smuggling in food and medicine, clothes, and in the suitcases, in the, in the baggage that she would take in, she drilled holes in the bottom. And she made, made uh, a false bottoms in the, in, the, in the bags. And so every time she would go in, she would bring out, unbeknownst to the Germans, a, a baby or a small child. Irene Sendler. She, she, was, she was, at one point, she was found out, and they beat her mercilessly, uh, but she didn't give up one name of, of any of those kids that she brought out. And she saved over, over, over 2,500 children were saved through that, that means. And Irene herself brought out over 400 children and saved them. I have a picture of her. She lived to be 98 years old. And this picture was taken in 2008. And those are some of the, those adults are people like Irene's down the corner. And those are some of the babies that she brought out. See, she had a divine moment. God placed her, right place, right time. Looked like the wrong place. She's in, she's in occupied Poland. Looked like the wrong time. She could have been killed for, for, for her, her bravery to save those little children. And she, she went on, she lived to be 98. She went on to, to, to receive many different awards uh, for her help for the Jewish community. She was always humble. And this is what she said in 2007. I was brought up to believe that a person must be rescued when drowning, regardless of their religion or nationality. We need more Irene Sendlers today. See, she had a divine appointment. God is in the business, strategically placing us at the right place at the right time to make a difference, but often the right place seems like the wrong place, and the right time seems like the wrong time. The Good Samaritan had such a moment he was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, when on his way, not caused by God, don't think that for a minute that God caused that traveler to be, to be beaten up on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. God has nothing to do with evil. Never, never, never. Evil is a result of sin in our world. Evil is a result of, be, of the enemy of our world uh, uh, lurking. The Bible says, your enemy, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's on the hunt. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your family. He wants you to be confused and alone and defeated. Jesus said, he is a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. We talked about two weeks ago, there are... There are people today, just like the victim on that road from Jerusalem to Jericho, there are victims today who have been beaten up by the thieves of this old world, the thieves of abuse or abandonment or depression or addictions or anger or resentment and bitterness that I could go on and on. And our enemy wreaks havoc with so many lives. But my brothers and sisters, our enemy doesn't have the final word. No, sir. God sends an Esther, a Moses, a David, a Daniel, an Irene Settler, a Good Samaritan. God sends someone who looks a lot like you and me to make a difference. The right place, right time. Doesn't look like the right place. Doesn't look like the right time, but it is. 
divine appointments, I believe, are all around us. God Almighty, who sees all, knows all, sends someone who looks a lot like you and a lot like me down a road to a workplace, in a school, in a neighborhood that looks eerily similar to the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. And don't be shocked if if God sends you into a God-ordained moment where God Almighty, who loves everybody, knows that there's a person in trouble, a child of his who needs somebody, somebody to be an answer to their prayers. Don't you think that guy who was left half dead on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho was praying? Of course he was praying. I know people who don't even believe in God and they're in trouble, they start praying. And so I'm sure that guy was praying, God, you gotta help me. You gotta send somebody my way. You gotta help me. Don't leave me here on this road to die, God. You've gotta help me. And so God sent a priest. But we know what happens with that guy. He didn't lift a finger. So the guy kept on praying, God, you gotta help me. That priest didn't help me. You gotta help me. You gotta send somebody. Send somebody my way. Don't leave me here on the road to die. So God sent a Levite. We know what happens with that guy. He goes on his way. He doesn't help at all. And so the guy goes on praying, God, you gotta help me. You gotta send somebody. Don't leave me here on the road to die. And who is the answer to that man's prayers? You know what I call him, a dirty, rotten, stinking Samaritan. The last guy you'd expect to stop, stops. The Samaritan was the answer to that man's prayers. He was experiencing a divine appointment. God made him for that moment. What about you? Could you be the answer to somebody's prayers? Could it be that God has strategically placed you sitting next to that person at school, in your workplace, right next to that coworker that everybody else is annoyed by? Could it be that God has strategically placed you in the exact spot, right place, right time, to make a difference in someone's life? It might not seem like the right place, it might not seem like the right time, but God has made you to make a difference. See, here's the thing about these divine moments. Like the, like the Good Samaritan, the divine moment is when you can make a difference in someone's life. When you can, can by, your, by your obedience to the Savior, you can actually change the trajectory of a person is heading, or a group of people, or a church, or a community. And can I tell you, there's nothing better than, 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 than seeing your gifts, your abilities, your, your willingness, your desire to be used to be an instrument in the master's hand. There's nothing better than to see how, how God has used you for his glory. To see how, how, how you've been an answer to someone's prayers. And in the whole process, when you do that, when you, when you obediently agree to, to step in and make a difference, you help that person. But here's the cool part. You become more the person that God created you to be. You, you become more whole. You become, you become more of, of who God wants all of us to be. Lord, thank you so much for how you're working in this place. Enter into our hearts, into into our lives. Help me to be with you, as your word says, forever and ever. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in this place, for how you're working. Thank you, thank you, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.